0: music
1: We're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinski, culture editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. Make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. Today, we're joined by Fox & Friends co-host Brian Kilmeade. He's also the host of The Brian Kilmeade Show, which is nationally syndicated. I'm sure you're familiar with it. And a New York Times bestselling author here to talk about his new book called The President and the Freedom Fighter. Brian, welcome to Federalist Radio Hour.
0: Thanks to Emily for having me on. I appreciate it.
1: Absolutely. This book has a fascinating topic, which is the the relationship uh, between Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass and their battle to save America's soul, as you talk about in the subtitle. Tell us why you wanted to write this book right now.
0: Well, I thought that, number one, uh, sadly, I knew race would still be in the news. I would hope it wouldn't be uh, red hot like it was when I was writing most of it, because that's when the Black Lives Matter stuff was happening, when people were uh, tearing down statues of all our founding fathers, which we're trying to build up and sell, not to use propaganda, but Pretty, to use facts. Ad, when you're yeah. taking down Jefferson and ripping down Washington and taking Lincoln's name off at Noah Elementary School, I thought, man, um, there might not be many people, patriotic people left, that want to hear this story. But I do want to do, a, I can't do a story about Lincoln. I feel like his biographies have been done too well, too long by too many people. And Frederick Douglass, also, some great work. We had David Blight just pump out that book of the year. But I thought this what if I talked about what they meant to the country, how they were imperfect people, but especially when it comes to Lincoln, never had a slave. He wasn't part of the slave culture, was for liberty for all. But if you asked him, are blacks and whites equal? Should there be intermarriage? He goes, Oh, of course not. Of course they're not equal. Well, that's what he was susceptible to. That's what people around him thought. But then people like Lincoln, like Benjamin Franklin, like John Adams would grow out of this and understand. Education equals the playing field for all. There was one group that wasn't, uh, of uh, wasn't didn't have access to uh, schools, and it was blacks, and they knew it. Keep a, Do not educate them, and they kind of want to know how great life could be, how much more it could be. So if I thought if I could track Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln and their respective ways, uh, had incredible obstacles to overcome, obviously Douglass is greater. And what they did become, I thought it could be inspirational and informational.
1: Yeah, and Frederick Douglass is probably one of the best figures in American history to turn to right now. Can you get into a little bit about why Frederick Douglass's example, and you talk about this in the book, why Frederick Douglass's example is so, I think, helpful in this moment in 2021?
0: Because he wanted to make things better, but he wanted to do it in America. He studies our Constitution and says, you know, we have to live up to this. In the beginning, it was the Constitution needs to be ripped up. William, William Lloyd Garrison was his mentor, a white abolitionist in the Northeast. And then when he took him in and trained him and mentored him and taught him how to speak uh, and speak in front of people, and he learned a lot on his own, he would gradually move away from Garrison because Garrison was for nonviolence, whatever it takes, and whatever you do, uh, don't ever look at the Constitution as like anything but a flawed document. He met another, had another mentor named Garrett Smith. He thought the Constitution was a brilliant document, and we're just not living up to it. And that slavery was supposed to be phased out because our founding fathers couldn't figure out another way. Because what happens is you're going to lose, you lose states. If you're going to lose states, if you just decide I'm going to emancipate the slaves, uh, we wouldn't be able to get a country back together. So we had to wait. And Douglas was very frustrated with that. He was frustrated that Lincoln had a meeting with African-American leaders and said, why don't we do colonization? I'll go. Any, you can go anywhere you want. I'll give you some money and place to live. But this is not working out between blacks and whites. Douglas ripped him for that in his newspaper, The North Star. But then later, they would find out that he was, in many ways, when he invited the New York Times, I think it was the New York Times, to join him in the, in the White House when he made this pitch to these African-American leaders. In a way, it looks like Lincoln was just trying to let everybody know, I'm trying everything to get to where he wanted to go, and that is to free them all and let them fight for their freedom. And Douglas began to see there was a method to the slowness And he would say it in a speech dedicating a controversial statue 10 years after his death.
1: Mm. Yes. Is that the one in Lincoln Park in Washington, D.C.?
0: That's the same one.
1: That's a great speech.
0: Oh, it's fantastic. But you know what's interesting, too, is that um, I read my I have a we have a special on Sunday, November 7th. And it'll go right to Fox Nation after it airs on the news channel. And I do my final stand up in front of that statue. And I Mm. read the last lines of his quote. And I'll just paraphrase it. You know, I wanted the president to move faster. I wanted to do quicker. And I wanted to, without due process, just get to free the slaves, get the right to vote. Let's move on and get citizenship. And yet he was moved slow for me. But for the times, he was very swift and direct and precise. Lincoln had to lead a country, not lead a movement. And Douglass began to appreciate that, and that came out of that speech.
1: Yeah, that speech is interesting because it it talks about. I think it brings the the concept of historical perspective <laughs> to the forefront, and it's amazing for somebody to be able to do that in the moment. And somebody who had been so injured by slavery and by uh, you know racial hatred and bigotry in this country, for him to have that historical perspective literally in the moment as he's dedicating a statue to Abraham Lincoln it is just amazing. Um, was there something about Frederick Douglass you learned? That surprised you as you were researching this book? Uh,
0: yes. That so you here's a guy that was half Muhammad Ali, half Martin Luther King. <laughs> you know he's but he had venom. You know he would not back down when he stood up and maybe the age was 17 or 18, and when his slave master tried to put a beating on him, he knew if he fought back he would be hanged and if caught. But this guy was known as a slave breaker, and he stood up to him, and they fought. He says for over an hour. But when he did not give an inch and it looks like clearly he won. Uh, but he would only defend himself. The guy came after him, he would stop. You know, boom. He would not get involved. They called for other blacks to get involved. They would not join in. When it became clear he couldn't finish Douglas and couldn't damage Douglas, they basically had a silent deal: I'm going to let you, I'm going to back off you. Don't ever tell anyone, basically, you kicked my ass. And that from the rest of the time, he would not back off a day in his life. And sometimes you'd be in front of hostile crowds and it would be uh, they would try to rush the stage and different white guys would stick up for him and fight him to the death. Uh, And that was amazing. And as angry as he was and as determined as he could be, he also thought big. How do I get freedom? Not for me, but for the four million that don't have it in a country of thirty five million. And when he went back and contacted his slave master, he was very mad at him, his owner. Who's was mad at him because the way he was depicted in his book, I could believe that or not, uh, he forgave him. And he said, Listen, mm. I forgive you. That was then, this is now, I'm done. You know, we're, we're we're okay. Do me a favor. Could you tell me when my birthday was? And I got a few stories that, uh, up from my youth that I'm not sure if I made them up or if they actually happened. What do you remember? And he helped him with his memory early on. And I ask you a guy that was that strong, who was beaten, who saw the resistance and frustration of people looking at him and being black and thinking they were more than him. He still believes in the country and he still had no problem or he seemed to have no problem forgiving his former owner.
1: The way you use the Internet has changed dramatically over the last decade, as we cover here all of the time. But security tools are one of those things that's mostly stayed the same. Aura provides complete digital security to help protect your online accounts, finances, and devices, and more, all in one easy-to-use app. Aura provides digital security protection to keep your online finances, personal information, and tech safe from online threats. It's all-in-one protection from identity theft, financial fraud, malware, scam sites, and so much more. With Aura, you'll get alerted to fraud and threats fast, like if your online accounts or passwords were leaked or if someone tries to open a bank account in your name. Aura is easy to set up. All plans come with a million dollars in identity theft insurance to help recover your stolen funds and experienced US-based customer support that's got your back. Aura is a new type of security service that protects all of your information and devices with one simple subscription. How nice is that? With an easy online dashboard and alerts sent straight to your phone, Aura keeps you in control and guides you through solving any issues. So for a limited time, Aura is offering our listeners up to 40% off plans when you visit Aura.com Federalist. Go to Aura.com Federalist to get complete protection and savings of up to 40%. That's A-U-R-A.com Federalist. And how did how did Frederick Douglass and you just sort of touched on this a little bit, but with the Lincoln example in particular, um, there's a obviously a there are plenty of flaws uh, to Abraham Lincoln, but Frederick Douglass was able to sort of see the glass half full as opposed to the glass half empty when it came to Abraham Lincoln. What were the 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 characteristics of Lincoln that Douglass admired?
0: The intellect, how well read he was, how calm he was uh how insightful and the way he listened and Mm. would respond and to me that and even in today between you and i the best compliment you give someone is when they're talking you listen Mm. and he was amazing he's going to see the president he's been critical of the president you know he thinks he's got he saw the sides of the line in the back and he's watching the intensity in which lincoln's taking everything he is in and the other two times they would meet, he'd be the same way, and I think that's what he admired of that. And and Lincoln never wrote down his impression of Douglas, but by accounts of people in the room, uh, he loved him. Mm. I thought he was a great person. Thought that he could do a lot with him. And I'll, I'll tell you, Emily, even though this was hundreds, he, you know, uh, you're talking 1863 when they met, 1865 when he dies. You can't help but just wonder what would have happened to this country had Lincoln lived. You know, to me, if things had calmed down, in which they did, he might even run for a third term.
1: Mm. And you
0: put Grant, because Grant never wanted to be president. He was great president in so many ways. But that was never his ambition. You put Grant with Douglas, with Lincoln, and no Andrew Johnson. If we had that in the 1860s, we wouldn't have needed the 1960s. (laughs)
1: <laughs> and that sort of the 1960s, the parallels with the 1960s and, and 2020, in which um, there that statue you mentioned earlier um, of Abraham Lincoln, um, which was paid for uh, by a fund that was put together by freed slaves. They tried to tear it down. Um, there was a, a movement, I was actually here covering the, the protest, where Antifa tried to tear it down. There were actual uh, social justice activists that wanted to tear the statue down. It sort of calls to mind uh, or, or brings to mind a question of what would Frederick Douglass think about the destruction or the attempted destruction of the statue that he himself dedicated? How do you think he would approach that, that question in 2020 or 2021?
0: Wow. I don't know of statues that he looked to push down, like James You know, Calhoun right. was a, a famous slaveholder and wanted to fight for it. I don't know if he would have done that, but I would say this. When he didn't love the statue, but he loved what went into it, that slaves put, stitched into it. He knew, uh, I forgot his net name, but his last name, Ball, that designed it. And when he first saw it, he said, wow, okay, it's a black man standing up slowly, breaking from his chains. And you see Lincoln towering above him. But he said it's interesting, but I don't think he would ever say take it down because so so much historic happened there. Number one, he's an historic figure. He gave a speech right in front of it. Number two, the people in the audience is the who's who of our nation at the time, including the president of the United States, Ulysses S. Grant. So I think that if if the right thing to do in a situation like that, when you look at a statue and I say, well, that's not really appropriate for now. Well, what would you do if you make it Frederick Douglass Park? or Abraham Lincoln, or the Lincoln-Douglas Park. Mm. And you put more statues of the both of them. And you point out, hey, this one was put there in 1876, and Frederick Douglass stood right here, and Ulysses S. Grant sat right there. But in future years, a better tribute that we think now in 2021 is this Douglass statue that stands at his six-foot-one, and this Lincoln statue with his hat stands at six-foot-six. And this this is the era in which we have up there, And you expand on these things. But, wow, when you look at something, if you don't like it or it makes you historically uncomfortable, to think you've got to take everything down or tear it down in a fit of rage, uh, I just hope this is a phase the country's going through.
1: Right. And Douglas uh, sort of his intellectual journey tracked, interestingly, with the arc of uh, the country at the time that he was alive. The country changed a lot um, during his lifetime. How did his ideas shift um, or, or how did he meet the moment or uh, continue to sort of develop intellectually uh, over the course of his life as the country was changing very much?
0: Douglas. Yes. Yeah. Or Lincoln?
1: Douglass, uh, Douglas. Uh, yeah.
0: Douglas kept reading if I, I encourage everybody watching us right now or listening to us to download the Columbian orator mm. because they both ironically just coincidentally I should say uh read it and what it is is a collection of essays and speeches from people from Plato to Washington and they just opened up their minds you know there's a there's a an acronym means can I constant and never-ending improvement they are the epitome of that Wherever they went, they were reading, they were studying, they were writing. And we, Douglas ended up in, later in his life adopting the, the uh, suffrage movement, working with Susan B. Anthony and others to get them the freedom to vote, get them the option to vote, believe it or not, uh, Emily. It's so embarrassing to think in the world women weren't voting. America was right in the middle of uh, giving women the rights that they, uh, they should have had all along. But Douglas worked on that area. So mm-hmm. it wasn't just about blacks. The other message that he had they learned is that, you know, just because you're free, it doesn't mean you have free stuff. He said, now you have to work. Now you have your freedom. Now prove to everyone that you earned it. So mm. that was his uh, message going through. Also, if I was to paraphrase another philosophy he has, I don't, uh, he said, I don't have to agree with someone on everything for them to help me with something. So if you know you do some things that I'm not comfortable with, and you you know you kind of insult me uh, subtly, but you could help me get a job, get a get a house, uh, to get my access to donors and sponsors, to get my movement or my foundation moving forward. That's okay. I don't have to agree with Emily for everything. If she could help me with something, and I could help her,
1: hmm. and
0: that's what he was. He was walking around seeing people say so-called insensitive things. Saying that, you know, you deserve your freedom, but you're not equal. Okay. But do you know anybody in New York? Okay, that's fine. I'm looking to start a movement. Do you think you want to help me out here? You think you have some friends who want to see me speak? And that was it. He was a resourceful guy who was a very reality-based guy. This is America as today. This is what's possible of how to move them. In the meantime, I am going to learn everything I can. And it me of Jefferson. When I went to Monticello, they said Jefferson would be in front of, be in the middle of nine books at once. And they'd be spread out all over the floor. He just had to keep learning. this thirst to learn. Douglas and Lincoln had it.
1: And Lincoln also uh, has, has, he sort of changed famously in, in different ways over the course of his life. Can you tell us about his uh, sort of ideological intellectual journey?
0: Oh, yeah. When he was doing the Douglas debates, he thought they should have liberty, that slavery was a mistake. And going back to see when he spoke at Cooper Union, what do our founding fathers actually think about slavery? And that's what I put in the introduction. You know, I think it was uh, Jefferson that said it's like having a wolf by the ear. You can't let him go. Uh, you can't let him go because he'll attack you, and you have to hold on or he'll attack you. So he felt as though we're in trouble here, and it's going to be hard to get out of this. I remember the deals we cut in order to get the states together. New York had different set of values in Rhode Island than uh, than South Carolina, North Carolina, and Virginia. So let's just come together. We'll we'll Gradually phase out this slave trade, which they did, and get rid of slaves. Uh, you know, by the 1840s, and it didn't happen. We had to fight a war to do it. But Lincoln was willing on his first, uh, his first inaugural, to say to the South, "Just come back. I'm not going to judge you. Uh, just come back. We uh, what's bygones be bygones. I'll even put in the Constitution that you can keep your slaves." But they had left. Jefferson Davis was the president. They had made. Uh, they already made amendments. They offered uh, the. They offered a new name, the Confederate of. Ah, uh, the, the Confederate of American States, Confederacy of American States, and they split off, and that drove Douglas nuts. How could you try to cut a deal? You know how wrong slavery is. Yet you were willing to extend it. You're no abolitionist. But then he be gradually went over to the cause to win another four years in office. He actually ended up running as a sincere abolitionist, talked about equality for all and the need to free them all. And when you come into the Union, you're all going to have to get rid of all your slaves. So that's how we evolved in real time.
1: Mm, that is so interesting, um, and it, it's also—I I, wonder—one of the things that Frederick Douglass and actually both uh, Douglass and Lincoln were spectacular on was understanding the Constitution as a mechanism for bringing justice about. And you know, with historical perspective, um, fairly quickly it wasn't—you know—as qu- as immediate as it should have been. It should have, of course, been immediate, but. What was it about the Constitution that both of these thinkers saw and admired and understood um, so deeply?
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, they just studied it. They studied like they did the Bible. They're both very into the Bible. They thought it was a brilliant document, like most people listening uh, would agree. But for them, uh, it was real. They could feel and touch it. And uh, in Douglas's case, he'd have what I think are Bible study classes uh, with blacks and let them know – you know what he would really do it in the north and teach them more of reading and writing when he was still stuck in the south over in Baltimore. Uh, but for both, uh, but for both men, um, you know, the Constitution was something that Frederick Douglass got to appreciate when he got to read it and write it. You know, William Lloyd Garrison told him it's a flawed document. Don't we're not going to abide by it. We're going to take this country back and rewrite it. And it was Garrett Smith who told him. No no, no, this is Constitution's perfect. We're not living up to it. We're not giving leader of uh, liberty for all, but we can fix that. And let's work together to do that and come out of the method to work that. So uh, And also, I thought it was interesting that they both spoke at Cooper Union in New York. But for, for Lincoln, he knew the world was watching and the Republican Party was trying him out. So he went back and gave his speech a lot about slavery and history. And he went back to see what Washington said and what all these other guys said. Uh, about slavery in their time and why they couldn't get rid of it. And then he made the case that they never wanted slavery in this country, but they had no choice. And the same thing came up with the former slave in Cooper Union. But Lincoln's speech was so good. It was it was fine for the uh, people in the audience who got a standing ovation. But when they sent it around the country, uh, he had everybody talking, talking about him, his future. And even though he would lose the Senate race against uh, the, other, uh, uh, the other Douglas, Stephen Douglas, he would uh, he'd be somebody that the, everybody would keep an eye on. Later, the New York power brokers would say, we don't want Seward. He's a bad governor. Uh, we want you. We're going to back you. Seward ended up being a secretary of state.
1: Are your thoughts running in endless circles in your mind? I know I've been there. With the stresses of the last couple of years, it's more important than ever to practice living healthier and happier lives. We talk about that on the show all the time. So what if a few minutes was all it took to change your relationship with stress and anxiety, transforming your life for the better? Well, that's the power of meditation with Headspace. Our thoughts can be confusing enough. Meditation doesn't have to be. Headspace is your convenient dose of meditation, mindfulness, and sleep exercises to relieve stress and anxiety and help you get a good night's sleep all in one app, making it super easy to catch your breath and to make time for your mental health. And it's one of the most science-backed meditation apps in the world, proving meditation works. A study proves in just two weeks, Headspace can reduce your stress by 14%. All right. So Headspace, if you're struggling with stress, if you're struggling with anxiety, you got to give it a try. Let's actually give it a try right now.
2: So either sitting down or lying down, just beginning with a nice, big, deep breath in through the nose, and out through the mouth. As you breathe out, you can close the eyes, allow the breath to return to its natural rhythm, and just take a moment to feel the weight of the body pressing down into the seat or the surface beneath you. Just allowing any thoughts, any sensations to come to the surface. The body, the mind, just letting go of those things. As the body begins to unwind, the muscles in the feet and the legs, just switching off, letting go. In the stomach, the chest, the back. Again, the muscles just softening, giving way, just switching off. The arms, the hands, and the fingers. All just letting go. The neck, head. even the muscles in the face, just softening. Letting go as both the body and the mind unwind. And you can either gently open the eyes again or just leave them shut now
1: meditation is surprisingly helpful i've recently found headspace and i'm excited to learn how to use it to meditate because it can really be a powerful powerful tool more than you even realize if you've never done it so find some headspace at headspace.com federalist and get one month free of their entire meditation library this is the best headspace offer available so go to headspace.com slash federalist today headspace.com slash federalist There's a th- an interesting duality in your career in that you're you're talking uh, about uh, contemporary politics, news of the day for you know hours on end every day, and yet in your your free time, what little free time I assume you have, you're researching history. Why, why are you so interested in uh, digging into the, the historical background, um, even though your, your daily work is so crowded by news of the day? And, and how helpful is it to informing so, what you talk about?
0: I mean, look, we're doing the war on terror and I'm able to take, well, Thomas Jefferson had the first war on terror. When people say this country and I talk about taking on four Islamic nations uh, because the rest of the world wouldn't, America would. And that helps me. So when it pops up and people say, you know, America's in this war since, uh, you know, since 2001, I go, no, not really. How about since 1780, uh, uh, 1778, seven? Excuse me, 1788. So, uh, to to listen to race and look at race, and having read Booker T. Washington's Up from Slavery and Frederick Douglass's uh, biography, which he kept updating, I'm able to sit there in an interview, let's say with you, Emily. Let's say you're challenging America and are bona fides when it comes to race relations, I'm able to sit there and instinctively be able to answer this stuff with substance because I, I feel like I live it. You know, I live what they went through. I'm not saying I absorb it all, but it gives me great context to everything we're experiencing.
1: Right. And does it also, I mean, one of the things that I think must be so difficult, um, especially, you know, being on TV for hours every day and then going and doing radio, when you you're you know, having to comment so much on these very difficult topics and news of the day, um, when we're at this incredibly divisive moment in our country, um, how do you sort of bring that that frame of mind to these conversations um, in a way that helps you talk about them persuasively?
0: Well, I mean, number one, I just uh, I think that you'll find the same thing. Eighty percent of the stuff written about us is negative. So I always take that into account. Just be willing to back up your facts and give context. So if I'm commenting on Black Lives Matter and uh, where the money went for the TAP organization, where the leaders to bring on important cultural issues, touchstones where you can get a perspective on how they feel about the blowback on the defund the cop movement. So I would like to you know, I like to question people with that with depth. So with historical context, so I think it kind of kind of works for me. I'm not sure I'm answering your question exactly. <laughs> no, totally.
1: <laughs> well, it's just, it's, it, it has to be really difficult to talk about some, some of these just like really challenging things, knowing that there's a microscope by bad faith actors on you every second, every breath you take. Um, and it doesn't matter how well intentioned you are, they'll take stuff out of context. Um, but at a certain point, I guess you probably just have to um, you know, say what you believe and go from there.
0: Yeah, I mean, I have no faith that I'm going to get positive publicity on things on the fly about my views. You know what's interesting is that when Jon Stewart used to run clips or Jimmy Kimmel used to run clips or uh, uh, one of the late night guys, Seth Meyers. You know, people used to text me, yeah, Seth Meyers killed you last night. Jimmy Kimmel was uh, all over you last night. Uh, Jimmy Fallon, who seems to be the nicest out of all of them, uh, was, was mocking one of the clips. Now... I could go weeks without hearing that they mocked me because those so many people have tuned out of this politically oriented comedy and entertainment who pretend to be equal opportunity offenders but only go after uh, conservatives and Fox hosts. That it's really, most of the people that watch now agree with a lot of the way I approach issues where before, maybe five years ago, even before Trump, there was always this sense of, oh, here we go again, John Stewart misinterpreting what I said, now going to town after cutting me off, and it would kind of get under your skin. Now these guys could be getting under my skin. I find out about something about John Oliver two weeks later, you know, he went off, or, you know, a lot of times my radio producers will find something and, and surprise me with a clip. But that's how polarized we are. People that are watching me aren't watching my biggest critics.
1: Mm. Yeah, that's a, that's really interesting and a really interesting statement on how the media business and the landscape has changed just in and of itself. Um, and I guess, you know, the with all of the fray and all the conversation about Virginia, I just want to ask before we wrap up, to what extent do you interpret that um because you're you're saying you know people don't text the the Stewart clips or the 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 late night clips or whatever anymore, and I think people are just so sick of a lot of the BS. There's a lot of people that really like it, you know. The, the, there's some chunk of the population that really eats that up, um, but it's not what it used to be um, because I think you know people are really really sick of it and. Do you think there was a lesson in the election of Glenn Youngkin and some of the results we saw from Virginia about the culture war, about uh, people just sort of finally tuning out? You know, if the left is going to call this guy racist, nonstop, nonstop, not stop, maybe it doesn't have the power that it used to.
0: I hope you're right, Emily. I really do, because I think you are right. I mean, if I, if I'd be called, if I get called a racist every single day, by the third fourth day, you're not even getting my attention and they're doing it every day. I mean to I am rolling these clips today on the radio show especially of them saying these these white supremacists in Virginia feel as though their kids aren't learning about uh, want to make sure the kids don't learn about slavery in school so they went ahead and uh, went to the ballot box and they're white supremacists I mean, they're white supremacists are you you're you're insulting 12 million people who happen to be Glenn Youngkin. now people are going to say I can't be called a racist I'm not going to vote for him or her so, I mean, I think we're going on, it's going on deaf ears now. I think that whole woke culture, they're starting to get themselves now. They wanted to target uh, us, and they're, they're turning the gun on themselves.
1: Mm. Brian Kilmeade, he's co host at Fox and Friends, syndicated radio host, also the author of The President and the Freedom Fighter, Abraham Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, and Their Battle to Save America's Soul. Brian, thanks so much for stopping by.
0: Emily, thanks so much. Good luck at the Federalists. Thank you, sir. You got it.
1: You've been listening to another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jasinski, culture editor here at the Federalist. We will be back soon with more. Until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray.